0: We are very fortunate today to be joined by Antoine de saint afrique Antoine has been CEO of Danone for about 18 months, Danone in a few words, food industry, sales approaching 30 billion, more than 100,000 employees, French roots and operating globally, and part of France's CAC 40, the 40 largest market capitalizations in France. Prior to taking the helm at Danone in September 2021, Antoine had been for six years CEO of Barry Calbeau, the world's leading cocoa processor and chocolate manufacturer. Prior to that, eight years at Unilever, followed by three years at Danone and another 15 years at Unilever, including the last four years, 2011 to 2015, as member of the executive committee and president of the 12 billion euro revenues foods business. Antoine is a non-executive director at Burberry PLC and remains a board member at barrick Antoine, a warm welcome to you.
1: Thank you, Jean-François.
0: We are going to talk mainly about Danone today. But before we do, I just want to ask two, three questions on your previous mandates. Now, you were president of Unilever Foods and a member of the Unilever Executive Committee around the time that the Sustainable Living Plan was introduced. Now from the outside, the launch of this Sustainable Living Plan somehow marked a departure. It was a momentous event where a major organization was making very significant commitments related to the environment and to the social impact of their activities. Now that's how it felt from the outside. From the inside, how did it feel? Was it, was it also that momentous? How was the decision made? Tell us about how it felt.
1: Well, it uh, it was very momentous because it was really a public commitment and one that was very forward-looking. At the same time, it was back to the roots. I mean, Unilever was created by people in the Netherlands, Mara Uni, and by Lord Lever, And the vision of Lord Lever was to give health to as many people as possible. So projecting ourselves as a company that was sustainable, A company with a real purpose and a real mission was in some ways getting back to the roots of the companies doing it in a very forward-looking way at a point in time where nobody was doing it doing it in a way that is quantified which nobody was doing either and doing it in a form of alliances or acknowledging that there are lots of things you cannot do by yourself but you need to do together with your ecosystem so yes it was at the same time very momentous And as well, back to the roots of the company.
0: Did the launch of the SLP actually lead to different decisions? Were there things that you decided differently after than before?
1: I think it had a deep impact. I mean, it had a deep impact in in many different ways. It did accelerate a sustainable transformation. So you looked at your product differently. You looked at your communication differently. You looked at the positioning of your brands differently. It had a huge impact on people, and one that is pride, one that is attractiveness, one that is forward-thinking. So it, it had both an internal and external uh, impact,
0: and certainly in, uh, an impact on the way of doing business. Now, fast forward a little bit, six years as the CEO of barri Calbeau, a very successful tenure on many fronts, including the financial performance of the organization, but one of the things that you did during those six years was to introduce major change in the company's approach to strategy and to the role of corporate sustainable responsibility and sustainability in general. Can you tell us why you made those changes and what those changes were? So I mean, if you're a company
1: that is a food company, a company that depends on farmers, that depends on trees, that depends on mother nature. Sustainability is not an option. It is a fundamental strategic stake. If you don't have rain, if you don't have trees, if you don't have farmers, if you are not, as a company, socially acceptable or responsible, you don't have a future. So what we did, and what was probably groundbreaking, not only in the profession, but altogether, was to look at sustainability not only as a moral imperative, but as a fundamental strategic stake and treating it as a strategic stake. So not doing corporate social responsibility, putting sustainability at the heart of the business model in a way that was extremely focused, in a way that was extremely disciplined, and with a view that
0: it is a strategic stake, so you treat it as a business stake. And I remember when you and I discussed this, because we have met before, full disclosure, one of the things you said is, is instead of having a multitude of, of indicators, some of which, frankly, are, are not related to our core, we really wanted to be exemplary in our core.
1: We were doing fantastic things. I mean, we were involved in schools. We were involved in wealth. So people were doing miracles. But those were miracles on a Friday afternoon. It wasn't deeply integrated into the business. So where we really focused on was on things that were deeply material to the business, deeply material to the society at large, and making sure that we were addressing them. And therefore, as I was saying, it becomes a
0: real strategic stake, and you treat it as a matter of doing business. Now, you step down from the CEO position at Barrie to join Danone, and from the outside, it may look like you stepped down in order to step up there, but actually, you had already started the succession process, because, and again, we had discussed this before, you'd said to me, you know, I told them from the beginning, I'm going to do six, seven years maximum, and I'm going to then move on to another stage. It reminded me of another CEO at the time, Carlos Gon, who had said, I'm going to go to Japan and stay there for seven years, because after seven years, I will turn into a nuisance. He stayed longer, and I will stop this sentence at that. Is six, seven years the right number of years for a CEO. Is that why you'd said, I want to stay six, seven years? Or, or was there something that was more personal, related to your own personal objectives?
1: No, I think it was a quite intentional decision. You want to stay long enough to go through two cycles, okay. and the cycle is typically three years, so that you can correct what you need to correct and make sure that what works you are, I mean, you deeply ingrained into the business, so that what you transmit, To your successor is something that is proven and that is healthy. You don't want to stay much more than that, especially if you're successful, because you run the risk of, well, killing your succession pipeline. People don't see a future. So good people wait for so long. Yeah, good people are moving away. And the more successful you are, the more you're at risk of listening to yourself rather than listening to others. So the kind of challenge you're getting after a certain while is not strong enough, and this is a danger for the company. So I was very, very clear with my board from the outset that I would leave between the end of my sixth year and the end of my seventh year for exactly those reasons. I mean, succession and also making sure that you do not become irrelevant because either you're too full of yourself in some ways, or you become lazy and you don't challenge
0: what you've built food for thought for other CEOs. Now, you joined Danone in September 2021, and you've been CEO for 18 months. First, tell us a little bit about Danone's businesses. Rather than me doing it, I think you'll do it much more articulately than me. Obviously, food is the major domain, but within food.
1: Well, I mean, Danone is, you would expect me to say so, is a a fascinating company. it's It's a company that was born in Barcelona for Danone with someone called Lisa Carasso that had brought strains from Bulgaria and decided to create food that would help heal young people in Barcelona. And that's how Danone yogurt is born. Move forward a number of years because this was at the beginning of the 20th century. Danone is a food company. It's a company which has an extremely clear mission, which is health through food to as many people as possible and a portfolio that is totally aligned to that mission. So we have mineral waters, I mean, premium waters in our developed markets, and safe water in water markets. We have dairy and plant-based. I mean, obviously, the yogurt, Danone, but also a plant-based beverage or silk plant-based beverage in the US. And we have a specialized nutrition division, in which you have infant milk formula, so brands like Aptamil, and in which also you have medical or more medical products, like Fortimel, so recovery of oncology. So a portfolio that is extremely focused on health, very, very compact, a footprint that covers over 130 countries, and a business model that is anchored into actually a culture which comes out of a speech that was given 50 years ago in 1972 by the founder of the group, Antoine Rigaud who in '72 had a very clear vision, which is a company needs to be at the same time about performance and about sustainability. When the speech he gave in front of actually the assembly of the French industry leader was starting by those words, we only have one planet, we only have one life, the responsibility of a company doesn't stop at the gate of the company.
0: And that is what is at the heart of our culture. Now, many of you will remember that you joined Danone and you became the CEO of Danone at the tail end of a rather turbulent period where your predecessor, Emmanuel Faber, stepped down about six months before you joined, following months of pressure from some shareholders and and I imagine some pretty intense discussions with the board. Now, without getting into the specifics of your predecessor situation, please allow me to focus on you and say, You're entering an organization that you you know a little bit, right? Because you, you work there. And of course, Danone is an icon for a lot of French leaders. And it's an organization that you respect. And it's an organization that has gone through five reorganizations in 10 years and has been portrayed lately as really underperforming in the press and in the media. What are your priorities as a leader when you arrive? What are the dos and don'ts of taking charge in this kind of situations?
1: Well, the first thing is you meet as many people as possible in the company but also outside the company and you listen and learn and you listen to what is told to you but you listen also to what is not told to you. So you spend lots and lots of time going throughout the ecosystem internally and externally. The second thing that you are trying to do from the outset is to bring peace and to give clarity. I mean, when you have a company that indeed has been through a very public governance crisis, a company that is, by the way, in the midst of probably the biggest restructuring of its history, you don't want to, I mean, add insult to injury in some ways, or add confusion and complexity. So you start giving a sense of direction, you try to give a sense of calm, You address with urgency, you think needs to be addressed with urgency, so I made one or two changes from the outset, because I thought the choices that were made were not the right one. but I didn't stop what was in motion, because you don't stop a car in the middle of the river. And then you engage parts of the organization in thinking the way forward. So step one was really listen, lead by example, by the way, go back in the stores talk about consumers, start looking at a couple of metrics that were somewhat forgotten, and built a compass for the future on which you can align your entire company. So count clarity and
0: lots of listening. At the end of about six months, you came up with a new compass, which was called Renew Danone, yep. which I guess included an analysis of where are we today, and a set of directions for where we're headed. Tell us a little bit how you analyze the situation, and in particular what the challenges were. Actually, what we did with Renewed analysis is fundamentally three things. One
1: is we took stock of where the company was, and we were very open to the market and quite uncompromising on the good, the bad and the ugly. Thing. We are. I mean, we are in fantastic categories. Actually, our categories are growing. They are going in the way where, or in the direction of where the consumer is going. So there is no real issue with our categories. We had been structurally underperforming our categories. We had lost volumes for ten years. We had been losing market shares, and the quality of our growth wasn't where it should be. So we were extraordinarily on what works, what doesn't work, especially on what doesn't work. To, well. First, because you solve an issue only if you confront it. Second. Because you will be credible only if you, I mean if you call the truth. We are clearly categorized our, our uh, rangers into three ranges. The winners, about 20% of the business, growing faster than the company being accretive. And there we said, well, those are the winners. We need to push them. The core, about 55% of the company, doing okay at the speed of market. How do we make sure that they don't slow down? And the bleeders. And we call them the bleeders, by the way, 25% of the company. And there we said, listen, we will try to understand really what's happening. So, root cause analysis. We will see whether we can have a value creating plan. And if there is no value creating plan, we will contemplate disposal. So, first bucket. Right. Second bucket is give a, a clear, clear direction on one page of what we're going to do. Winning where we are, expand where we should be, see the future, rotate the portfolio with four core capabilities. And the last thing is we change the economic model, which we are offering to the shareholder, moving from a model that was led by reaching a percentage EBIT by a certain date, which was really the key indicator, to an approach which is one of our business model, if you want. So growing at or above your market speed, doing it in a way where you invest behind your brands and your capabilities, where you leverage your infrastructure, so the quality of your growth is important, so that your bottom line grows actually faster than your top line, and be very disciplined on your return invested capital and and your cash. So moving from a a model predicated on EBIT percentage to a, a business model approach. And if you put those three things out, you start giving a very, very clear compass to your company, but also to the external world. You start creating a clear, common language
0: across the company. A few follow-up questions. The first one, you said quite explicitly, almost brutally, a brutal truth. Was there any sort of pushback because your board is still there? a lot of the managers are still there. Did anybody say? Antoine, you can't really say that because this will be perceived as a criticism by everyone. You know, you, you have to tone it down. The language, indeed, that you're using in some of the shareholder presentation and some of the analyst presentation was quite direct. Actually, you would be surprised by the, the positive
1: welcome we had to that kind of uh, approach. Uh, before we shared the strategy with the market, we first worked on it with about 70 people from the senior management and actually calling a spade a spade and facing to the reality, however difficult it is, was seen as a relief in some way. Because when you face to the problem, you can start addressing the problem and the problem turns into an opportunity. So was it comfortable for everyone? Certainly not. Was it freeing the organization? Certainly yes. And even more so at lower level than at senior level. So no, I didn't get any pushback. Anyway, I was convinced
0: that this was the way to go. So interesting, this notion that it's actually a relief. Your point is everybody knew. Yeah, of course. And and if everybody knows, you're much better off acknowledging it. Now, you also mentioned this from EBIT growth to somehow business model growth. So from an American model to a Swiss model. One of the questions I actually wanted to ask you was... In this plan, you say we're going to increase the advertising and promotion spend. We're also trying to increase margin. And, you know, I'm a professor of leadership, so numbers are not necessarily my thing. But I thought if we spend more on advertising and promotion, how do we increase margins?
1: No, no, I said, actually, we said two things. We said in year one, we would reinvest all the money that we would get out of the restructuring back into our advertising, so supporting our brands quality of our brands, and capabilities, rather than flowing it to the bottom line. As a result, we said that what was the guidance for '22, which was 15% EBIT margin, was off the table, that we would move to the business model which I described to you, and that we would be at or above for '22 12% margin. And from there, we said we would increase the profit faster
0: than the top line. So there's a bit of a leap of faith that you're asking your shareholders that, If we reinvest in the business and if we get the fundamentals right, the quality of revenue goes, will go high and our margins will grow.
1: I mean, the reality is the shareholders know because they are deep into the business. So at some point, if your share price is going down, it's because the shareholders don't believe your story and they don't believe the story because they have come to a different conclusion. So it is back to the discussion we had also about speaking the truth and facing the truth internally in the company, you face it also externally. And shareholders gave us back, after the capital market day, a a very clear message, which is, well, listen, we want to invest into a, a business that is creating value in the long run. What you're offering us is a business model that is credible. Now, by the way, deliver on it, because if you don't deliver on it, this is blah, blah. But we understand the logic of the business model. Which is why when we announced our new guidance, we didn't have a collapse of
0: the, of the share price. Although it was vastly different from the previous one. So when a lot of executives and some CEOs say, ah, oh, you know, the market completely short term obsessed. What I'm hearing from you is if you have a compelling story and your story is credible and hopefully you have enough also personal credibility to back it up, actually it is possible to get some patience from shareholders.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to be very transparent, and we were extremely transparent. You need to be very committed also on what you are, very clear and committed on what you intend to deliver, and then you need to deliver time after time after time. It's not necessarily easy. Uh, you need to build over time your credibility. But don't underestimate the knowledge that the market have of your company. I mean, analysts are extremely smart, They are extremely well informed. They look at market shares more than your brand managers from time to time. So there is no hiding from the, from the truth. You don't want to be cornered with uh, a million of KPIs because then everyone will take their own KPIs and you'll be boxed and you don't have operational flexibility. But you want to be also very clear and open because anywhere the truth is on the street. Huh?
0: Now, specifically in terms of some of the areas, there is a focus on specialized nutrition. I think some of, the, some of the taglines offer the best medicalized solution during life cycle, which I guess includes from a young age to a later age through middle age. Now, this is getting you closer to health science and chemistry, which is you know, significantly different FMCG. So how do you decide what's in scope from an innovation perspective and what's not? And how do you decide what you'll do internally and what you'll partner with others? Well, I mean, the first thing is, I mean, if you look at our portfolio, yeah, I mean, it's very,
1: very consistent. I mean, extraordinarily focused on health. And if you look at specialized nutrition, we have everything that is infant milk formula, which, by the way, extraordinarily sophisticated. And some right. of it towards more medicalized. We have oncology recovery through foods. We have prevention of a couple of diseases, and we have a number of other things like tube feeding, which are ultra specialized. So it's all about food. It's all about health. It's all about either staying healthy because of the way you eat or getting healthier with what we provide you. So, that is the logic. There is a second underlying logic, which is you have actually fundamental synergies. When you're very good at concentrating protein for 40 ml, which is about oncology recovery, you can also concentrate those protein into your pro, which you sell on the shelf, as yogurt with protein for youngsters or people my age, by the way, uh, that uh, want to take protein to build or avoid losing their muscles. When you are extremely strong at working ferments, and when you are very strong on gut health and the relationship between gut health and ferments, well, it has obviously an application in yogurt. This is where it's born. So you have it in Danone, you have it in Activia. you can start doing immunity. That's what we do with uh, Actimel it travels also into infant milk formula and in some other products. So you have a you have a substrate of science and technology around gut health, around immunity, around allergies, or around ferments, that is the same. And the way you deploy it, the intensity of it, varies depending whether you're sold in hospital, in pharmacy, or in consumer goods. To your question, which is do you do of it yourself? No, you don't do all of it yourself. I mean uh, one of the things we just opened last week, a big research center in Paris. The mindset behind that uh, research center, and by the way the design of that uh, research center, is a collaboration. It's in the middle of the biggest science park in Paris, close to the best science schools, close to the agronomy school, close to an ecosystem of startups, and close to some of our partners. And the name of the game is obviously a partnership.
0: You don't invent everything yourself. Those times are gone, I think. So when you think of Danone, if I say Danone is an FMCG company, you would say you're selling us short. We're actually also a scientific company.
1: Yeah, I mean, Danone is a health-through-food company, and it's expressed from our health-through-food in an extraordinarily affordable way. Danone, by the way, a Danone yogurt is not a yogurt. It's a Danone, through the more sophisticated way when you talk about, I mean, metabolics or cancer recovery. But we are about health through food,
0: in whichever form it takes. Now, tricky question. Uh, Danone produces and exports water, which A, is kind of heavy to transport internationally, and B, also is becoming less abundant, including in some of the, the streams that uh, you guys own. How sustainable is the water business, especially still water? Yeah, so let me
1: challenge: We pump and export water. First, 80% of the volumes we are selling in water are local volumes, and they are local volumes done in emerging markets and done in a way where we are extraordinarily involved in preserving the wells. Okay. Because if the wells do not exist in 10 years or 20 years, well, there is no water for anybody, and there is no business either. If you take the little water or the little water that is being exported, we are not talking about tap water. I mean, avian, uh, avian, uh, avian, avian water is to water what champagne is to fruit juice. It's a very, very uh, different nature of product. It's filtered for 15 years through the Alps. It comes at the end of it naturally, so you don't pump it. If you, if you create a vacuum in the well, you kill the well. So the vast majority of it goes, by the way, in the lake. People like us, I mean, use less than 0.3% of the water uh, resource. We protect for the last 30 years, the because if we don't protect it today, 15 years down, you don't have water. So we treat it with an immense care. We protect 140 square kilometers above Avion with the municipalities, with uh, no artificialization of soil, with methanizers so that you don't have manure. So, actually, it is something that is extremely high value, uh,
0: which is why it travels. Okay. So, what I'm hearing is, how sustainable is it? We are making it sustainable by taking extraordinary care of the system that produces this water. And also, we only take a small percentage anyway, and we only transport okay. super high value. The rest we do locally, and by the way, we do it locally in a way that is more sustainable than most, may I say? Now, Danone is already number one in plant-based drinks and yogurts. How quickly do you think plant-based products, including milks and yogurts, will catch up and maybe one day replace milk-based products? I'm convinced that the world
1: is going flexitarian, not vegan. So it's not one or the other. Okay, it's the two next to one another, and each of them is bringing a different benefit or is best at a different moments. When you want to have a, a yogurt-based dessert, you can express it with plants. In some cases, it's really good. I mean, if you try Alpro coconut, it's a fantastic dessert. But the starting point is it is a fantastic dessert, and it is plant-based. In some other cases, I mean, fantastic, but dairy-based, people won't compromise, but you want to give them options. So one is not going to replace the other. They are going to live next to one another be very complementary
0: in what they bring. And you see that, by the way, because both keep going. And do you see a greater growth in plant-based than in milk or or milk still growing as fast?
1: You you see a faster growth in plant-based. Penetration of plant-based is much lower than the penetration of dairy products. So you you have quite a way to go. What we can produce and how we produce it. So the quality of the product also in plant-based is improving. So are right. I, I mean you get also repeat purchase and people that are that are interested. But the reality is the two are, I mean the two are going to coexist, the two have their own role. I think the the war of plant against milk-based product
0: is, I mean, to me largely irrelevant. I mean both have a both have a role to play. Now, in one of your documents you mentioned that the organization had started to play not to lose rather than playing to win. As it happens, one of my colleagues at IMD, George Colreiser, uses this vocabulary. I know how he uses it. But how did this difference manifest itself in your view?
1: It is your ability to take risk and your willingness to take risk. And therefore, your willingness, by the way, to fail. But you won't win if you're not ready to fail at some point. It is your appetite to raise the floor in permanence, not only raising the ceiling, but raising the floor of what is good. It is being obsessive with the outside. So obsessive with competition, big and small, obsessive with the market, and making sure that every time you do a bit better than the previous time. It has a lot to do with mindset. It has a lot to do with measuring. So become a bit more obsessive about market shares. I'm not sure we were enough. It is about being obsessive with competition.
0: What do you learn? Why do they do better? What could you do? Listening to you, I'm thinking, but if my boss is obsessive about measurement, it could also create in me a sort of fear and a sort of retraction. Or maybe it's because my boss would be obsessive about the wrong measures. You improve only what you measure. To me, that's very, very clear. Okay.
1: Then the question is, how do you use those measures? And it's more a matter of leadership than a matter of measuring. If you punish people that have taken a risk and fail, indeed, okay. nobody will take any risk. Or if you create a culture where putting a problem on the table and facing it means actually unlocking an opportunity, if you create a culture where those people that have tried are being rewarded for trying, as long as it's done in a smart way, I mean obviously not in a suicidal way, if you create a culture where it is legitimate to raise the difficult question and where we work together at solving those questions, we take ownership of the resolution, you create an atmosphere where I mean talking
0: facts and measuring is just the ground of which you grow your people and you grow your company. Last question on this front, building a team. If I look at your top team it is constituted of a, a number of Danone lifers and also a small number of people that you brought with you from Barrie and or from Unilever. How do you think of this balance between internals and externals and in, and in particular What would lead you to hire into the job some members of of your previous organization? It goes back to what is the job to be done, what are
1: the best capabilities to do it internally and externally, and meritocracy. So it's being very objective on what kind of quality skills you need to the job, what kind of culture and behavior you're fostering, and who's the best to the job. And in some cases, you have the resource internally. We've done a number of internal promotions after my arrival. But in some cases, you don't have the capabilities internally. And you bring people that you know have the capabilities and the cultural fit to your organization to move your organization
0: forward. And the key word here is, I know them. In addition to the fact that I I know that they have these capabilities.
1: I think the key word is there are people that have consistently delivered, have the ethics and the culture that will fit in the organization. It's about track record, it's about values, it's about culture. And yes, if you know some people and you've seen that for a long period, they are easier to access than just fishing on the market. But it starts with, are they capable? Do They bring something that is differentiated and have they done it in a consistent way? Do they have the uh, backbone of values that you want to see around? And will they fit the culture of the organization?
0: I hope this is not too iconoclastic a question. <laughs> is there a risk that they might be seen as friends of Antoine? Uh, listen, uh,
1: bringing people that you've worked in the past, there is always a risk when the announce comes out that they are seen as your friend. The reality is, if and this is the case for the people I've wrote, They show that they are a big upgrade, that they are delivering
0: from day one. I mean, the question disappears in a a nanosecond. Then the challenge for them, of course, is going to be, and then I need to establish my own credibility quickly. Another tricky topic, Russia. It was a significant market for Danone, about 5% of your revenues. In a press release, Danone said you had begun the process of transferring control of at least the essential dairy and plant-based business to and as of yet unnamed entity in Russia, and basically that you expected this to lead to about a 1 billion euro hit. Very tricky topic, obviously. Can you share with us how you and your team thought about this? Because it's very easy to say, well, you know, get out of Russia, but the reality is it's a complex topic. Please tell us how you thought about it. I
1: mean, when when the war started, obviously, we had a big business in Ukraine, big business in in Russia. The first priority is you take care of your people. And you just make sure that your people are safe. You make sure, by the way, also that the people that live on your product, I mean the kids that are in hospital, get their product, whatever happens. So the first priority is that one. To do that, you need continuity, you need stability, you need leadership. We announced at the start of the war that our products in Russia specifically where products that I mean, go to hospital, go to kids, go to babies. And that we thought that they were essential products, and that we weren't waging war on either our employees or ordinary people. Over the course of the following months, obviously, running a business from outside Russia, in Russia, has become much more complicated. Because of the sanctions, because of all the constraints of running a business in Russia. You come at some point to a point where you want to make sure you keep doing what is in the best interest of your 9,000 employees, so making sure that they are taken care of, making sure that one way or the other there is continuity of supply to babies because you don't hurt babies or people in hospital, regardless of what's happening out there. And so you work on something that ensures that continuity in the best interest of all stakeholders, which is what we have announced. So is it an easy decision? No. Is it an easy process? No. But if you have a very strong moral compass, if you're very clear on your values, well, you take the decision step
0: by step alongside the values of the company, which is what we have done. The board shareholders have reacted okay to a 1 billion euro hit. It's is 1
1: billion write-off. Yeah, that's the cost of doing the right thing. Yes, is the answer.
0: One last question before I switch to slightly more personal questions, because as you know, I'm a professor of leadership. I have to ask you one or two more personal questions. But last one, and an important one. As you mentioned earlier with the speech of Antoine Riboud 51 years ago, Danone has a long and proud history of what we would call today stakeholder capitalism and environmental and social responsibility. Now, the reality is also that Danone uses a lot of milk, and a lot of milk means a lot of cows. And a lot of cows means a lot of methane, which we know today is much more detrimental to the environment than CO2. Now, Danone has entered the global methane pledge, which is the commitment to reduce the methane implications of your supply chain by 30% by 2030. You're working, I think, with close to 60,000 farmers in in many countries. They're not working directly for you. How do you coordinate an ecosystem into that
1: direction? Uh, Literally, you work farmer by farmer. and We have been pioneers, actually, in helping farmers to turn towards regenerative agriculture and regenerative dairy. So as part of the contracts we have with them, and we have multi-year contract with the majority of our farmers, we help them transform the way they farm, the way they farm the feed for the cows, the type of cows they are using, the way they treat the cows, so animal welfare, and we work with them on a whole palette of things to actually transform the way they are producing milk. If you take milk, milk is about globally is about eight percent of the total methane emissions. More or less the same as rice. There are ways to keep bringing the methane emissions of our milk down. It's the way you feed the cows. It's the way you manage the manure of the cows. It's the way you build the barns. It's the way you cover the ground. It's what the cows are eating. It's the productivity of the cows. The productivity of a cow is about five liters. In Friesland, productivity of a cow is about 35 to 40 liters a day. Well, the same cow emits more or less the same amount of methane. You can do time eight on the revenue of the farmer, and you can probably divide the methane by eight. So there are ways, and you want to do that, because the milk protein is a protein that you cannot replace. It's a very, very efficient protein. I mean, that one kilo of milk, Takes about 1.2 kilo of carbon. One kilo of meat takes 20 kilo of carbon. So it is by far the most efficient animal uh, protein. protein. And it's only marginally more than soy to take another protein.
0: Huh? And that means a lot of people going to talk to a lot of farmers. I guess yeah. that costs money for them. Yeah, but it goes back to what I was telling you about Barry Callebaut, which is uh, if
1: milk is an absolutely critical ingredient, because this is what goes into infant milk formula, because this is the base of our yogurt, the sustainability of milk and the acceptability of milk is not only an environmental topic, it is a fundamentally strategic topic. So you treat it as a strategic topic, you treat it as part of your business plan. When you give visibility to farmers, because you have multi-year contracts, a part of which is on sustainability. Well, you secure a future for farmers. So you secure also the fact that there will be farmers in the future, so there will be milk. You really need to look at it from a business angle, and not only from an environmental
0: angle. There is a return on investment. Now, the return on investment is partly determined, or certainly influenced, by the regulatory framework. Mm -hmm. Clearly, organizations like Danone are able to accelerate the world's progress toward a more sustainable and inclusive model. But should governments do more? Should governments accelerate the, I guess, tightening of regulations in order to help organizations like Danone that are trying to do the right thing to also be able to extract enough financial returns from this?
1: Well, uh, first, governments are doing a lot. I mean, if you see uh, the evolution of everything that is green accounting, that going to come to the same level as financial accounting in R uh, twenty four. Actually, there is a lot that is happening. Okay. Should government do a lot or not? I, I'm not sure that's the right question. To me, the question is: How do we make sure that we collectively? I mean, all stakeholders: governments, companies, NGOs, consumers. Focus on the thing that will have a long term, disproportionate positive impact. And impact, long term, sustainable are the words that are fundamental. Because otherwise, I mean, you can very easily, for political reasons, go toward things that look good in the short term, but are only displacing the problem. Solving some of the issues that we are collectively facing requires that you go deep and that you do it in a proper way. And the proper way doesn't happen overnight. So there are companies, I think, have a disproportionate role to play, or companies with a strong ethos have a disproportionate role to play, because you build for the long term.
0: Yeah. On a more personal note, Danone is an iconic company, particularly in France. And you, you were born French. And so you're now the CEO coming after legendary CEOs who are at the vanguard of discussions of topics, again, like that we call today stakeholder capitalism or triple bottom line. How does it feel to, uh, to be filling their shoes today? Well, it's an enormous responsibility
1: because you're carrying a, a legacy that is amazing. But it is what being CEO is. I mean, as a CEO, you are the steward and the servant of your company. When I mean, you take a company in a certain state, you want to leave it in a slightly better state. I mean, you're passing a baton, and in the process of passing the baton, you are lifting the legacy, building on this legacy. So you just keep building, I mean, layers after layers, and trying to leave it a bit better to the guy
0: that will take after you. One of the implications of being an iconic company, also in a strategic sector like agriculture and food, is that I imagine you must have a lot of conversations with external stakeholders. What percentage of your time do you spend on external stakeholder management and how do you feel about that part of your role? I I would be totally unable to
1: tell you how much time I spend on that. I spend quite a bit of time in the company. I spend quite a bit of time with customers, which are very important stakeholders spend quite a bit of time with consumers, because staying anchored on the ground is super important. And yes, obviously, you spend time with lawmakers, with NGOs, with all kinds of stakeholders. I mean, as a CEO of of a large company, you have a responsibility to also communicate what your company is about, or create trust around your company. And manage an ecosystem of stakeholders that goes from uh, yeah, analysts to uh, governments to NGOs to uh, customers. So it's part of the. I mean, it's part of the job. There is a continuum. So I would totally be uh, unable to tell you X percent of my time is on external stakeholders. And
0: can you tell me how you feel about it? It's part of the job, or. It is part of the
1: job. I mean, some days it's fun, some days it's not fun. But, you know, when you carry the flag of a company like Danone, I mean, it is a responsibility. So it's part of the thing that you are doing. It is very important. And by the way, you're mighty proud to carry the flag of Danone. So you just make sure that that flag is
0: is flying high. Let's assume you just hired me and I'm (laughs) starting to work for you. You invite me to a meeting during which you're going to establish the rules of engagement between us. How would you describe yourself as a leader, and what would be the non-negotiables you would expect from me? Integrity is non-negotiable.
1: So there, it's not gray. I mean, it's black or white. So, the, I mean, uh, being, true to, uh, being true to your values is the start of everything. It's the start of trust. If there is no trust, there is no business. So as, uh, that one is as simple as that. I think once this is established, I love helping solve problems. So bring me your problems with a recommendation for solutions. Okay. And, and we'll move from there. So no, no bullshit. Put the issues on the table. And 80% right is better than 100% late. Okay. So there's a speed aspect. Yeah. Timeliness. There, there is a timeliness. Yeah. So pragmatic, Yeah, I'd expect you to be uh, practical and pragmatic. I'd expect you to be growing people. If you don't grow people, you do just 30% of the job. Learn, okay. learn, learn all the time. Uh, the day you think you've learned everything, you become useless. I mean learn again, so a mix of things,
0: and from you, I can expect
1: you'll get things as they as they are you'll get caring and demanding, and both at the same time.
0: okay, now, next to last question, being the CEO of an international company today is very demanding, enormous pressure from everywhere. How do you maintain yourself at relatively peak performance? Uh, what are some of the i don't know the rules the the, the rituals that you have. The way I keep going is having
1: multiple places where I recharge. Obviously, okay. I obviously recharge with my, with my family, which is an important part. I spend lots of time reading and reading things that I never read a business book, by the way. So reading things that well, I, I really learn. I spend lots of time talking to people that do things that are very different from a, a farmer to a guy doing physics. So I, I keep learning. I keep learning all the time. I keep talking to people that do also the same job as me to see what I can learn from them. So having a,
0: a multiplicity of a center of interest, that sounds like it takes time, which means that there are moments at work where you say, that's it, no. You have to protect some of the time that is required to read, to meet people.
1: Yeah, but I mean, there is a continuum and there are proportions that are varying in this continuum depending on the day. But I mean, I don't ask myself the question of work-life balance because both are totally entangled. And what I do outside my daily work nourishes my work. What I do at work nourishes my daily life. So the proportions vary. I, mean, I mean, this week I was in road shows, so I had no time to read, but today I'm with you, so I'm learning. But you make sure that you recharge. I make sure that I nourish myself with lots of different things in a very systemic way. I mean, it is about preserving your freedom. It's about preserving your intellectual freedom. It's about preserving a form of emotional freedom to be able to be at your best. I mean, I think
0: you play at your best when you are free, not when you are afraid. Last question. I think you've already told us a little bit, but you love your job because Oof, there are zillions of
1: reasons uh, because of people. I mean, you have an impact on people. You can change the world around you, so you have a, a real impact. Because Danone is one of its kind. A company. Because you have to reinvent yourself every morning, so there are plenty of reasons for I love my job.
0: Well, one of my colleagues from Case Western Reserve said, you cannot be engaging if you're not engaged. You certainly come across as being incredibly engaged and engaging. Antoine, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Jean-François.